how are we going to start? I already forgot how we're going to start. You made jokes and then I... Well, I was musing on how much of a fancy man you are with your eating fancy cheese and drinking fancy wine. <laughs> All right. I'm drinking red wine right now just for this podcast. Much more fancy than me with my Pepsi and cubes of cheddar. Pepsi and cubes of cheddar. Do you put the cubes of cheddar in the Pepsi? Because that is not the recommended <laughs> consumption method. How are we kicking off? Did we have any feedback? We did have a little bit of feedback. So we were asking how would it change the workforce? What would happen if we were to have UBI? And one of my friends suggested that he would take more unpaid leave and he would do this in order to do bike riding or train for races. To me, it sounds a little bit crazy because I know how much this gentleman earns and $15,000 UBI, you know, he could probably save that in a couple of months if he wanted. But I do think it's just the psychological barrier of having no money coming in and watching your savings dwindle and dwindle and dwindle makes it really, really hard to not work at all. And if you're going to work, you may as well work a high paying, high stress job. I found that really interesting, partly because it is so alien to me, because like definitely he could just save half his money for a year and live the other half of the year off that money and do this bike riding that he wants to. I do understand to a certain extent that not having any money coming in is quite scary. I did it for a little while while I was taking care of April and I was lucky enough to not be scared by it. But certainly a lot of people at work are like, man, you have no money coming in, Chris. That would be terrifying. The stress you must be under is ridiculous. I'm like, well, yes, the stress that I am under is ridiculous but not for that thank goodness yeah i wonder about that about just your ability to take the leave like i've had people who want to take unpaid leave and we're like no you got to run your leave balance out before we let you take unpaid leave so you must be taking a lot of leave and then taking leave on top of that leave in order to actually take advantage of the ubi in his mind well yeah so i don't think he actually i don't know i don't think he actually does it at the moment i think it's just the idea that he would be able to train really really hard if he could dedicate three months ahead of a race and just train six hours a day and i I get the temptation as someone who has trained triathlon before i understand the temptation that when you're in you want to be all in it's one of these absolutely obsessive things because you sort of have to be to run that kind of a crazy race and i understand the temptation to want to take time off work and just train yeah probably four to eight hours a day or maybe more like we're talking 180 kilometer bike rides to do a full triathlon so if you just want to practice the bike leg alone without running or swimming at all that day you could easily spend six or seven hours in a day training yeah yeah i can see that i can see that for triathlons for sure i've definitely had conversations one of my old bosses The great thing about his supportiveness was that he often talked to, look, we can be flexible on time. Doesn't matter if, you know, you need to take two hours off in the middle of every day. If you want to train for a marathon, because that's just what you want to do, we'll figure out a way around it. Or if you want to start late every day, we'll figure out a way around those hours. But being accommodated with a triathlon, yeah, when you're tacking on a big bike ride and swimming on top of that, I can see that your training schedule will get pretty packed. Yeah, I mean, it gets very full. I mean, usually you do the big bike rides on the weekend, right? I could ride 150 kilometers on the weekend and then go and do a run. Like usually I would only do a 5 or 10K run just to feel how the legs felt after that much cycling. That was a typical trade regime. And I would train, and I was a pretty lazy triathlete. That was the fittest I've ever been, the hardest I've ever trained in my life. But I'm pretty sure I only trained one sport in a day most days unless I was doing ride into run because ride into run is the most difficult one. So a lot of triathlete training plans are here's your morning regime, here's your afternoon regime, and you're training six days a week. So you're running, swimming, three times a week you're running three times a week you're riding three times a week and you're doing a run ride so you're doing 10 training sessions in a seven day week yeah 
Oh, and those like the ultra marathoners, I don't know how they do it. Man. No, that is truly, truly crazy. I remember, just as an anecdote, when we were in Bath with this patron, in fact, we went to get our breakfast and a bunch of people ran and seemed to be finishing a race at like 8am in the morning. I'm like, what the hell is going on? But they looked really, really tired. It's like, yeah, we started at 8am yesterday and we have been running for 24 hours to get here. It is a 200 mile race or something, except I screwed up and I went a 10 mile detour. So I had to add an extra 15 miles to my race. God. <laughs> Like, my body would just be much, but this guy was like, okay, let's walk and go and get lunch. I'm like, walk, walk, where are you going to walk to? I would just like lie on the floor and make people stretch a me to places. Uh, you just got to walk it off, man. You just got to walk it off. Well, that was their option. That was their option. So very impressive. He didn't even look like he looked like pretty wild eyed, but he did not look debilitated. He was walking just fine. It was really, really impressive. That ultra marathoning, really, really impressive. Definitely. I don't like running at the best of times. I run only in protest to do a triathlon because I just think it's a cool <laughs> thing to do. But swimming, I got my head around swimming and I could find that quite meditative because the water and the waves is pretty nice. Riding, obviously I love riding. Running, I just did begrudgingly because otherwise I don't get to finish. Yep. Yeah, I knew your thoughts on running. Yep, they have not changed. I'll still run every now and then as a social activity, but like now that I have so many bikes, you know, I know where my loyalties lie for sure. That's fair. Okay, so more time off for events. More time off, that was the idea. I don't know whether works have to become more accommodative with that because in my mind, one of the difficulties certainly in taking unpaid leave is it just feels like a hard thing to ask for, right? Yes, that was kind of my point. It's like, it's really hard to get to the point of find the space for me in my job to give me unpaid leave and yeah. also for the managers to be like, okay, well, now I need to factor in the extra headcount, I suppose, to cover that unpaid leave. Like Exactly. I want three months off. So please don't hire anyone in that three months, but hopefully nothing catches on fire while I'm gone. Like how important can I really be? I'm like, well, usually if they're paying you, you're like, you're pretty important. Yeah. Three months off, it's just a very difficult time to fill with a contractor because it can take months to get up to yeah. speed in most roles. It feels like a difficult thing. Oh, my God, yeah. The difficulties of covering temporary arrangements. I've had it enough in my life where it's like, okay, yeah, we're doing a big restructure and someone leaves with six months to go left in the restructure and you're like, okay, how how do I navigate this big gap? And it's not easy. So imagine Ouch. having that happen every year just because people were taking time off because they had the capacity because of UBI. Yeah, because they can get UBI. Yeah, I actually don't, unfortunately, dear patron, I actually don't think that UBI is the trick to your methodology. I actually think if you're really interested in that, you should probably be contracting. And I actually think that you're in a very good position to do that if you want. And you may make even more money than you're making now and you already make ridiculous money. And then you could do a six-month contract and then just not look for a contract for another two or three months and sort of live off the same. I get the, the fear of uh, not having any money coming in, but I think the extra, the additional money that you would earn contracting, if you can budget well, you, you, you could live the lifestyle that you want. Live your dreams, man. Live your dreams. Live your dreams. Short-term contracting pays quite a premium. So. Yeah, particularly the industries this person's in and particularly the city this person's in, for yes, sure. Definitely that. And just, just listen to how stressed I was three minutes ago talking about trying to cover gaps. Like, that's how important contractors are. Yeah. You could be nailing this. Yeah, you had a lot of skills, man. I think that you would be eminently hireable in, in these contract roles. You could get some poor stress manager like Brian. You could you could help him out as well, whilst also <laughs> making a huge amount of money. Well, that's an interesting point of feedback. I, yeah. I hope that we helped broaden their mind. I hope so. I'll see how they go. They usually listen. It's extremely nice. I have two international friends who listen on clearly their Monday. And so Tuesday morning, I wake up and I usually have messages from both of them discussing the latest podcast. And I love it. I really look forward to those messages because it is an extremely nice way to keep in touch with my international friends. So please continue. That's fantastic. It reminds me a bit of a bit in Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek, where he's like musing on 
I think it's in Wall Street, or maybe it's like Tom Cruise in some other movie, where they're like, okay, so what are you doing? What's your goal for earning all this money? And he's like, oh yeah, I'm just going to earn enough so I can retire and ride a motorcycle across China. And it's like, dude, it's not actually that expensive to ride a motorbike across <laughs> China. You could probably do that right now. Yeah, I mean, China's a pretty cheap place to live and work. <laughs> well, it certainly was in the 80s when they didn't make that movie. Oh, so, yeah, in the 80s, geez, it was a proper third world country back then, right? Not the economic powerhouse that it is today. Yeah, just to make it clear to everyone, Chris is the only one on this podcast who has any friends. I have none, so <laughs> all the feedback goes through him. Ah, uh, to be fair, you know a lot of my friends and could be friends with them. Listeners, if you want to reach out to Brian <laughs> instead of me one time, don't do it regularly because I'll miss you. But if you want one time to reach out to Brian with your thoughts on the podcast, he would he might enjoy it or he might just forward them to me. I don't know. Either way it goes, I think you, I think it's worth a try. It's it's just nice that Chris's friends and my potential friends listen to the podcast. All my actual existing friends, other than Chris, don't. So <laughs> there's that. When I trick you into moving to Canberra, all your friends will listen to the podcast. Yep. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Right. One other note. I had a little bit on UBI. That was a pretty popular topic. I'm glad that that one was suggested by one of our patrons. It proved a very popular topic because we've got acres of feedback on that. And one of the ideas was like repugnant as it might be, but UBI may reduce crime at the point where people are destitute and just need their next hit of heroin or cocaine or whatever uh, and are willing to rob people to do it. That's pretty bad. And, you know, people get held up at gunpoint or they get their window smashed or it's just not a good situation. So maybe we don't want to necessarily pay these people to just be in a drug out stupor for the rest of their lives. But honestly, it may be a society will benefit. You would prefer to rehabilitate them and make them productive members of society once more. But if you really can't and really what they want to do is get bombed down in their mind, giving them just enough money to live on and buy a few drugs maybe a superior social outcome just on the reduction of crime itself that's an interesting point i think there's similar points around just the legalization of drugs etc but just enabling that i guess it kind of plays to a like narrative that i feel like has died off a lot recently mm. which i tried to touch on when we were talking about ubi around myself being totally comfortable playing video games but like when people talk about people going on ubi and just checking out from society and wanting to play video games or whatever they're really judgy about it yeah and it's like well it's okay for people to choose to do things and if someone wants to just play video games all day maybe that's actually what they want to do I think there's like an intervention there to say, maybe check in on them every couple of weeks and be like, is this really what you want to do or are you just stuck in a funk? But if that's what they really want to do, that's okay. It is very hard. And I say this as a fairly driven individual because I get really sad when I have nothing to do. And I have been in pretty dark places for the past six months where I just have nothing to do but watch terrible YouTube videos or play video games. It's like, it's all I want to do. I can't be bothered actually doing anything, but it makes me really sad. And if I can manage to force myself even just to do something physical, like ride a bike, I feel a lot happier personally. It's hard to see someone doing that with their life and not expect them to react like I know I do. Uh, yeah. But you also have to accept that not everyone's mind is exactly the same as yours your own this is a genuine point of unknown within my mind of how much we should intervene in these people's lives like can we make them happier by making them more engaged in society and doing more versus like are their minds just wired differently than mine and they're actually genuinely as happy as they can be and they should just be left alone to play video games i don't know yep i agree like my last six months my last 12 months my last 18 months have not nearly been as bad as chris's but also as someone who has suffered from chronic depression from the age of 14 i definitely know what it feels like to get stuck in a funk and yeah. just want to play video games and it not being the ideal point and frame for my own mental well-being. And that's why I say having that intervention of just dragging someone out every couple of weeks and being like, is that really what you want to be doing? Is a fair thing to do. And I, I feel like it's not a significant imposition. 
on someone's time. But at the same time, sometimes there is a reason and it is an okay choice to check out from time to time or for a sustained period of time even. Yeah. Well, I mean, I pretty much checked out for three months at least in fairly dire circumstances, I would say. But I didn't. I don't even remember what I did for those three months at all. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember how I filled the days. I did start doing things. That's like, you know, and again, this is the this is the drive I seem to have that some people have and some people don't. And I'm very pleased to have it because I think it takes me better places in life. But yeah, eventually I would just start doing some woodworking or some random projects just to have something to fill the days in. What the hell were we even talking about? UBI. People UBI. checking out. Oh, yeah, that was what I was talking about. It's like people are really, really judgy about people taking drugs and whatever. Maybe if we gave them UBI and they didn't have to scramble to steal people's car radios that no one has anymore um, (laughs) to sell to get money for the drugs, maybe UBI would be a net benefit that way. And I think at the same time, the legalization of drugs and that kind of avenue would also lessen the ostracism, I suppose, and judginess associated with that. Yeah, the stigma. Yeah, there you go. That's the perfect word for it. And at the same time, I feel like generally society-wise, maybe it's also just I'm getting older and around people who are more judgy, but it feels like there's a lot more paternalism in the social discourse these days of, no, people are stupid and we need to tell them what to do. Right, yeah. I wonder if that's just the natural reaction to more of your friends being of parenting age and having stupid people that you do need to tell what to do in that your kids probably need you to tell them what to do. And then you Also, friends being managers and actually having to deal with people who aren't themselves and driven and realizing, oh my God, not everyone's as driven as me. What? Yep, sure. That's tricky as well. I don't know. I mean, you know, this comes down right to the root of modern rich society is a lot of the time you need to motivate everyone to pitch in because we need everyone to do the work so that society can actually function. But the more and more automated and rich the society gets, we actually don't need people. And, you know, some people maybe can't contribute to society as much as they need society. And the obvious ones would be people with true mental disabilities where we feel it's obvious to take care of them. But how advanced does the society get before you say the person with no drive and not much intelligence and just wants to take all drugs all day you know they can't really contribute to a modern technological society but we don't have to arrest them or you know look down on them they've you know they've been born how they've been born and if they just want to take drugs and play video games all day maybe we can enable that with all the wealth that we've got i'm really not sure yeah we don't need to punish them to stop them from doing what they want to do yeah to make them choose this the second best option which we think is better but they don't yeah yeah and again knowing someone's mind who's not your own is tricky and maybe that is the best thing for themselves yeah again the thing that is right right now is maybe not the thing that lets you move forward. I, you know, I feel this deeply in my own mind is that a lot of the time, all I want to do is sit on the couch and cry and just watch terrible YouTube videos. If I do nothing but that for five years, I don't think that I will enjoy my life much more in five years than I enjoy my life now. So actually focusing on trying to build a life for myself is important, even when it's uncomfortable and it makes me sad. Yeah. So yeah. I try to drive myself and some extrinsic motivation helps in that. I've been calling in a lot of friends to help with that extrinsic motivation to get me doing more things because I don't think I'm capable on my own of driving myself as hard as I wish I could. Yeah. I mean, disclosure to the listeners, before we started recording, I started this call with saying, yeah, I'm feeling like I'm on the downward spiral and I don't want to do anything, but I'm here. And in the middle of this conversation, I'm feeling actually pretty good. So it's like, you have to do what you don't want to do. You learn it. Yeah. Starting is often the hardest bit that has been true for my entire life, that starting is the hardest bit. Starting any project is tricky. And then once you're in it, once you're recording a podcast, you feel really good and you've got lots of things to say and you're enjoying the conversation. Definitely. Yeah. It's a similar thing back when I used to do jujitsu. I never wanted to go to jujitsu, but as soon as I was there, I was always glad I did it. So it's like, you just have to remind yourself in that moment where you're feeling like I don't want to do anything. Remember that moment when you've we're at the place and you realized, oh, wait, I was stupid for not wanting to be here. Yeah. You just got to start. You just got to start, start. 
you just got to start. It's hard. It's really hard. I've definitely had times where I didn't start, but you know, when you do start, it can be well worthwhile. All right, the last thing I had last week, we talked about the news and we talked about how what we really like is the individual connection. So, you know, I really like Scott Alexander. I really like Tyler Cohen and I don't give him any money because I'm a giant tight ass, which may feed into the later half of this podcast. But those are the sort of people that I could see giving money to rather than even the New York Times, which has a number of authors that I enjoy, but is more of a collection grab bag. And so we talked about how that relationship is perhaps what drives the modern news and certainly what drives our news consumption. But the fear there, I guess, is that how does the news generation get it start because a lot of the time these news organizations these bundles would use the bankroll of the highly noted highly respected author that everyone pays because they really really want to read x for the new york times i don't know who x was because i don't really follow the news but they really really want to read that person and then the new york times can use some of that money to pay the salaries of the junior up-and-coming writers and i'd say honestly we're in that situation right we're starting a brand new podcast and mostly our friends listen to it which is possibly where it will stay forever and i'm pretty fine with that but like if we wanted to break out out into the community, how do we do it? What do we do? There is no aggregator where we apply for a junior role and we can do the occasional podcast while also doing some editing duties or whatever. If we really wanted to make our start in the media, how do you do it? Yeah, it's fair. In the absence of newspapers, agglomerations, that kind of thing, it it reminds me a bit of a quote from, I I can't actually remember his name, but Tycho from Penny Arcade. Yeah. So it would have been, this would have been a quote from around 2006. Web comics had taken off and they were making money and they were just starting up packs. And like he did some interviews and they're like, so how do you be successful in web comics? And he's like, well, you had to start seven years ago is how you be successful. (laughs) And it's just totally path dependent, right? So if you get to this point where there is no discovery mechanism, where there's no way to feed in the junior writers or that kind of thing, you're right. You're just going to ossify the old structures and everyone's just going to read the same old writers. If there's no like good referral mechanism or no discovery mechanism, like they tried and failed to get working on Medium or yeah. like we don't even know how it works on Substack other than authors picking fights with other authors. Um, what? Yeah. There's leaderboards, but again, to get to the leaderboard, you already have to be pretty good. I don't know how you discover it beyond that. Yeah. Just the, the Penny Arcade comic just as a... Another anecdote is that the Vlogbrothers, who were some of the very first breakout YouTube stars, also get asked this question. It's like, how did you make it big on YouTube? And like, we started when YouTube started. I don't know how the hell you make it big on YouTube. There's so many people out there now. It's such a huge platform. What do you do? I have no idea. We just started at YouTube at the time that YouTube started. So that was pretty much all there was to watch. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think that webcomics are really that much of a thing anymore, but I still read a couple. I still read webcomics. I still have, I don't know, a couple a day that I read. I enjoy them. I've just got uh, SMBC and Dinosaur Comics, so yeah. Dinosaur Comics is good. I still do Nerf Now, Penny Arcade. Penny Arcade still goes strong. They've got some funny ones in there. Their art style is good. It's really weird. I read almost all video gaming webcomics, but I don't really play video games. It's it's (laughs) quite strange. I just have an interest in the culture, I suppose. And every now and then, like, that's how I discovered Hearthstone Battlegrounds was through a webcomic. I'm like, that sounds like a thing that I should play. And I did, and I love it. And I've been playing it for years now. (laughs) I'm actually wondering. I reckon I've watched it more than I've played it. Well, I don't know that there's any webcomics about Diablo 2, but there is a cartoon series on YouTube at the minute that is fantastic. There you go. Well, we'll put it in the show notes for you. (laughs) Ah, cool. 
Yeah, my notes for myself. Last week, I sort of offhandedly mentioned that I didn't really know what monetary policy was all about before inflation targeting. So I had a bit of a dig around. We'll put it in the show notes. There's a good summary from 2010 from the Reserve Bank of Australia, giving an overview of the last 50 years of monetary policy. And the kind of summary view is before 1970, no one really cared about monetary policy, really? to be honest. When, so, when, was the, um, when did we come off the gold standard? Was that in the 70s or in the late 60s? That was 70s. So between whenever it was, Bretton Woods and... And when was Bretton Woods? Post-World War Two. Post-World War II, so around 46, yep. I think it was. Yep. Everyone was doing exchange rate pegs to the US yep. dollar. That was Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods was the exchange rate peg to the US dollar, and the US dollar was always redeemable for a fixed amount of gold. That is correct. And that all fell over in the 70s. So the US started seeing big inflation, and they couldn't really fight it, and they were also getting hurt by, well, cost side pushes on inflation, as well as just inflation itself from running the economy too hot. And they got rid of the gold standard effectively and everyone was also trying to figure out how the heck to manage their own risks because uh yeah currency pegs are really hard basically if you've got a currency peg you can't really manage your own interest rates internally yeah i'm shocked that they lasted till the 70s man so much about the modern economy as i understand it as like fundamentals of this is how economies work is less than 50 years old yeah, that's crazy. So it's maybe we haven't figured it out yet. Maybe we're not quite at the final form. Have you ever thought that, Brian? Quite possibly. I mean, but also like productivity gains all like started leveling off in the seventies as well, right? And like the decorrelation between productivity gains and worker wages and that kind of stuff happened in the seventies. The seventies is just a really weird trigger point. It's just a very yeah, it's a very important time in monetary and fiscal policy. Wow. Hmm. I'm surprised that doesn't get brought up more, honestly. Yeah. Something weird happened in the 70s and we're not sure what. Oh, also we left the gold standard in the 70s. Hmm, maybe. I don't know. And also we saw like massive catch-up inflation because expectations all changed around then and then we decided we were going to manage expectations, but now we're not letting expectations be natural. So what the heck? I don't know. Expectations are also a very weird part of economics. The animal spirits have always confused me quite a bit. I've sort of made my pace with them a little bit more, but yeah, so much of the economy is run on like, what do you think inflation is going to be? And you ask that question of enough people and that's sort of what inflation becomes. Yep. So it was a good read as someone who is across economics, but also at the same time, I feel like it's fairly accessible, this article from the RBA. So it might be worth a bit of your time to just have a skim through. <laughs> some of it honestly reminded me of the reflections on in the 1950s and 60s, some of the discussions happening now on modern monetary theory. And oh, like yeah. the reserve banks would just like whatever, just give the governments whatever debt that they could so the governments could finance all this spending. And that ended up kicking them in the ass in the 70s with all the catch-up inflation. Oh, no. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of interesting seeing how that kind of rhymes. Well, I don't like the sound of that at all. No, that sounds no good. Let's not do that again. <laughs> While I am on inflation, a colleague of mine gave me a great link during the week looking at inflation and uh, the monetary supply in Japan from a mm. investment analyst called Lynn Alden, which I also shared with Chris, and it was just fascinating. So probably the key takeouts I took from it was everyone thinks that Japan just had this massive crash in the 90s, and it was actually quite a slow crash, and that's why it was really so painful for stock market returns. We're going to talk right. about stock market stuff soon enough. So in the financial independence community, everyone always gives the counterexample for safe withdrawal rates to be, well, what if you were retired in Japan in 1989? You are stuffed. And it's like, well, that's mostly because they kind of had a slow burn crash. They didn't just have a big 
complete collapse. Also, they had quite a big ramp up in their last couple of years, I think is also understated. But yeah, yeah. well, Japanese stocks couldn't be valued like normal Western stocks. They had to value them <laughs> on completely different metrics. So they were much, much more valuable for reasons that are... <laughs> <laughs> and the other big thing that I saw in the analysis from that was looking at the growth in the different monetary base. Yeah, that's what I found really, really interesting because Japan went through a deflationary cycle from the mid-90s through the aughts, through most of the aughts, even to the mid-teens sort of thing. I think it was around Arbenomics when they started massively pushing out and doing like helicopter money sort of stuff. Right, and when was he? He's been in power for a while now. Yeah, I think it was around 2010. It was shortly after I graduated. And so this is famously where Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Fed Reserve during the Great Financial Crisis, got his nickname of Helicopter Ben because he he made some offhand comment of like, Japan should be printing more money and just dropping it out of helicopters if necessary, something to kickstart their inflation. And so the interesting part of that article that you're mentioning to me was certainly that while they did print a bunch of money, the banks then didn't lend it out properly. And so the different monetary supplies, they increased M1 without really increasing M3 anywhere near as much as you would think. If the US increased M1 by the same proportion, they possibly would get runaway inflation. But the way the Japanese banking systems and the entwining of the stock market and the Japanese government, because the Japanese government literally buys stocks in order to keep the stock price high at the moment. They do all sorts of weird stuff. Oh, well, yeah. who knows? <laughs> Turns out modern economic theory is only 50 years old. So who knows what weird and what's like the absolute <laughs> correct thing to do. They do different things to me and they seem weird and scary to my eyes, but possibly they're the exact same things to do. So they managed to print a bunch of money without really impacting inflation as much as you might think because the bank didn't proceed to multiply that money by lending it out as much. Yeah. So if you looked at like their monetary growth bases, their M1 which is, you know, bank reserves and actual physical cash, essentially. That kind of grew at the same rate as what has happened in the US with quantitative easing and all that kind of stuff. But their M3, which is includes additional lending and money market funds, that kind of stuff. So the money that the banks are then taking those reserves that they get from the central bank and then making mortgages and making other different business loans, et cetera, lines of credit, um, that's M3. And what was happening in Japan was the banks weren't doing that much more lending based on this growth in their reserves. They were kind of just making themselves more safer and sturdier to operate. Whereas in the US, all that bond market funds and all the additional M1 was getting multiplied by the different leverage ratios that their banks were applying. And it was going into things like the real estate market. It was going into a bunch of stuff. And that's where this analyst, Lynn Alden, sort of sees that there is an inflation risk. It's not likely to be disinflationary. Yet the current economic crashes that they've seen, speculated, are not likely to play out like has happened in Japan over the last 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Japan's very different and not a good guide for what the Western world's doing right now. Definitely. So that was super interesting. Okay, got one big topic to cover. A few of the listeners and our friends will know both Chris and I have been heavily into the concept of financial independence, and we've mentioned it obliquely a few times in the podcast to date, indicating that we have been interested in the topic. Probably it would have been around the start of our friendship, so I think we started hanging out around 2012, and I think 2013, 2014, Chris became interested in this topic and referred me to it, which caught my brain in just the right way. So what this is as a summary point is effectively amassing a level of savings and wealth to be able to support yourself independently of having to work. Uh, It's effectively retiring early or having enough money to be able to retire and sustain your current living standards. 
Yeah, so FIRE stands for Financial Independence, Retire Early. So you can do one of those things or both of those things or, I mean, really doing the second without doing the first is deeply, deeply risky and I don't <laughs> recommend it. Kind of dependent on uh, pension systems, really. Well, it's not really early if you're kind of like seeing a pension, right? Uh, well, unless you're getting a ingest pension. And you could get a disability pension. That's true, I suppose. That is true. So yes, financial independence retire early. It is the idea that we are wealthy enough in the modern world that if we decide not to live at the level of our income, but live below and considerably below in some instances, you can retire much, much earlier than would be seem to be possible during a normal pension or accumulation of superannuation where you're expected to retire sometime in your 60s or possibly even 70s. Yep. So it was definitely throughout my coming of age a offhand comment amongst many of my peers that we'll just be working forever because there won't be a pension when we're old so just be prepared to work until you're like 75 or whatever and yeah the way that chris got me into it was through a blogger who was very engaging called mr money mustache uh, through his seminal piece of work called the shockingly simple math behind early retirement where he lays out you know if you save x percent of your income Here's how many working years you would have until retirement if you started right now at a base of zero. So assuming you earn a certain amount of interest or returns on your savings yep. and then you live off that amount at a you maximum withdraw 4%, which there's a lot of studies behind why that is pretty safe to do for at least 30 years. You could effectively live off the money that you were spending every year indefinitely after so many years. So if you yeah. saved 5% of your total income every year, you would need to work for 66 years. But alternatively, if you saved 50% of your income, so your take-home pay was, I don't know, $1,000 and you save and you only spent $500, then it would only take you 17 years of work to be able to continue only spending $500 a week. And it didn't matter how much you earned. All that matters is the percent that you save. Yeah, that's the important bit is that it breaks it down to percent of salary. So if you can live on X percent of your current salary, you can retire at a certain point and continue to spend that X percent of your current salary indefinitely into the future. You know, And if you met me during 2012, and I'm surprised Brian became friends with me because I'm quite obnoxious about this, I think it would be fair to say, if you can save 70% of your money, you can retire in less than 10 years. You only have to have a 10-year career if you can save 70% of your money. Yep. So the simple spreadsheet that I'm looking at now, because I've loaded up the page in the first time in many, many years, 70% of your income means 8.5 working years until retirement. Yep. Which is pretty short. That's a pretty short career. Start your career in, you know, your early 20s if you go to uni or in your late teens if you don't go to uni. Uh, that means you're retired in your early 30s. Yep. And the whole percentage point basis, that was a huge, huge revelation. It didn't matter whether you earned $50,000 a year or $40,000 a year or $200,000 a year. Those percentages all worked out. It may mean you would have different spending amounts based on those percentages, obviously. Yeah, obviously you would be spending and retiring on different amounts. But yeah, assuming you could spend that percentage of your income does not vary. Yep. The appeal of having that level of independence, and this may have come across in my discussion of management last week, of being able to define your own path and not be contingent or subject to the whims of management above you uh, was very appealing. Additionally, the great thing about the FIRE community at that stage was I would say a lot of its morals were similarly aligned to my beliefs. So beliefs around kind of minimalism, I suppose, or low environmental impact around living a simple life and maximizing, you know, your happiness within those bounds. Yep. And yeah, I don't know. What did you see in it, Chris? So, I mean, the... I'm going to 
channel 24-year-old Chris because I've given this speech a few times. So I would often give this to grads a few years below me. And the thing that FIRE has taught me the most and the thing that I try to teach others the most is that your level of spend doesn't necessarily correlate that close to your happiness. Like, I'm not sure about you, but I had a ball at uni. I loved being at uni. I loved having my friends. I had my terrible share house with mold in the walls. I could barely afford to put petrol in my car. I could eat out once a week. But man, did I love life. It was just so much fun hanging out with friends, doing things. And so the idea that I need more money than that sort of is obviously untrue because I had only that much money and I had a lot of fun. So just because I'm earning more money doesn't mean that I have to spend more money. It's very easy to spend all your money. And believe me, I am doing it right now. I'm spending much more than all my money right now because of, and this may be part of the further discussion, but I don't think that I'm happier. I don't think that spending money is necessarily that closely correlated with money. Yep. I think the one rejoinder I always used to like offhandedly make to colleagues of mine who did spend a lot more money than me or that kind of thing when I was like weighing up financial decisions was at the time, one of the things that made me happiest in life was a soft serve cone from McDonald's and that cost 50 cents. 30 cents at the time. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know what? I could just like all these purchasing decisions, getting a bigger TV or whatever at the time. Do I really need to spend $1,500 on a bigger TV? How many soft serve cones would that buy me over the years? $1,500 times a 4% withdrawal rate. <laughs> I could definitely afford a few a year just from not doing that decision. Yeah. And get just as much joy. Yeah. My favorite takeaways, like the retire early no longer interests me. And this is one of the major pushbacks that I got from uh, some of my friends is like, what are you going to do when you retire early? You're going to be bored and depressed and you're not going to want to. So why bother saving for retiring early? That is not a desirable goal. So you are foolish to give up all these big TVs or international holidays or whatever you're giving up for a goal that is not desirable. So you should just spend all your money all the time. That was one pushback that I had at times, depending on the person I was talking to. And I just turn it around and I'm like, I don't feel like I'm giving that much up. I really feel like I've had a really, you know, there have been things outside of my control, which have been terrible, but I do not regret almost any of my decisions throughout my life in terms of saving money. Not one bit. Every now and then I would be such a tight ass that I would like impact other people with my tight assitude. And I do regret essentially me being cheap. I didn't want less stuff. I just wanted other people to pay for that stuff. And I don't think I did this a lot, but like meals out and that kind of stuff every now and then I would try to dodge my fair share possibly. I do not recommend that. I think that that is a false economy because you will lose friends to save like 50 bucks a year. And that is not a, that is the worst trade in the world that you can possibly make. And luckily, I don't think I lost any friends, but that is a behavior that I do not endorse any longer, which I did as a result of my obsession with fire. I'm just going to jump in there because there might be some people who thought I did the same thing. I'm just going to clarify here. I was always willing to pay for your stuff. You just always paid for it before I did, or sure. I just never felt the opportunity. So this is a honest conversation I've had with Chris before. It's just like, I need to get better at going and just paying for like the first round of drinks or whatever, because yeah. it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do, particularly when you're very focused on money and you're like, well, they seem happy paying for my drinks. So why wouldn't I let them? And the reason you don't let them, 20-year-old who's listening to this potentially, I don't know whether we have any 20-year-old listeners who are just about to jump into fire and think that this is a reasonable thing to do. The reason you don't is just the social expectation that they will pay for your drink and possibly they'll pay for your drink indefinitely. And some friends I have really enjoy paying for that drink indefinitely, but most friends expect some reciprocity and they will never ask for it. They'll never call you on it, but they will just slightly, slowly become less and less your friend. So it is not a risk worth taking. But in terms of eating out or getting, you know, doing Friday night takeaways or buying my lunch at work every week or buying a bigger TV, I have not bought a TV in 10 years. And every now and then I think about 
about it because Brian's TV is so much bigger than mine and it makes me worry and question my manhood. But I still haven't bought a bigger TV and I still talk about it. But, you know, years have gone by where I'm like, I'm going to buy a bigger TV than Brian one day. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to buy a much bigger TV than Brian. And I still haven't done it and I still am not entirely sure that it's on the cards anytime soon. Yeah, honestly, like looking back at myself at that age, even now, I do wonder how much of it was, it fitted into my pre-existing beliefs really, really well. And I feel like I had a different path to you on that. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I haven't read you as well, but I feel like I've been more interested in environmentalism and that kind of low impact life than you would have been at the time. Yeah. So I have an interesting, I don't think that I'm intrinsically that interested in it. I think that I have grown up to two parents who are extremely environmentally sensitive and that I feel like I just get a free pass as a result. I'm like, I must be environmentally. If I'm a child of my father, then I must be like a super greenie, obviously. And then I don't think (laughs) about it anymore. So you may actually be right in that you do genuinely care more about the environment than I do. I just sort of take it as a given due to my upbringing. Yeah. For everyone listening, one of the tropes of the early fire movement, I call it the early fire movement it's only like this would have been eight years ago was like you you don't have a car you ride your bike everywhere and that kind of thing and that was just something that i was choosing to do anyway like i bought a house that was relatively close to work and i thought it was just entirely wasteful to drive a car like that so i would ride my bike and then i got this link from chris with a guy who does exactly that and he's like yeah driving your cars for suckers you should always just ride your bike everywhere i'm like yeah man this is great yeah that was definitely one of the bigger changes to my lifestyle that i made immediately upon just covering this blog was i made the commitment when i bought my new house that i was ride to work every day and from the time that I bought my first house it was the rule that I would ride my bike I'm not saying I never drove there would be reasons why I would drive but I I don't think I've ever been like I'm running late for work and I'm feeling lazy I'm just going to drive today I think that it would always be I have to be at x you know 10 minutes after work's finished so I really need a car to get there because I physically can't ride there that fast that would be the only reason I would drive to work for the past 10 years now and now so this is the other point that fire brings up is that you know cars cost a lot more money than bikes but I kind of hate cars now like I hate parking I don't like you know they're just frustrating things to deal with when I ride my bike I know I can pull up directly out the side of the shops and just walk in and I'm done when I've got a car I have to find a place to put it and then I have to walk 500 meters because I got to park way at the back of the car park or you know I don't get the fresh air I really genuinely enjoy riding I don't get the physical exercise I actually think that a bike is a superior mode of transportation even if they cost the same and they don't cost the same no i would 100 percent agree with that i think even separate of the cost savings that you get from not running a car as much or being able to only have one operational car instead of being a two car household that kind of thing just the psychological benefits from riding some of the times when i got really into fire and i got really into riding my bike i would do what i previously considered crazy stuff like i would ride my bike in literal hail with no you know extra poncho or anything and you know what (laughs) Turns out that's actually super fun. That is like being a child and playing in the rain. So it's stuff that you wouldn't realize until you actually go and do it and force yourself outside your comfort zone. So here's one for you. How much of that is just feeling like a superior being to all those normies who couldn't possibly ride in the rain? Because I definitely got off on that for a while, right? I'm the hardcore one. I'm the best. I'm a really good person because I ride in the rain. I can deal with this physical discomfort because I'm just like a superior being in the world than all those people who have to drive cars. So there's a bit of that masochistic, and I see it in racing a lot, like Spartans definitely channel that triathletes definitely channel that that like because of what i can physically accomplish with my body and the discomfort i'm willing to endure that makes me a better person i'm like i'm less sure i buy into that these days but definitely i've felt that feeling yeah i'm not going to say that's zero but honestly at the same time there was just a literal feeling of joy that is completely separate from those masochistic feelings i've had 
Okay. I could sort of feel that. The riding in the rain can be satisfying. When you know there's a hot shower at the end, I think that that can be quite nice. Riding to work at the rain, I always found much less fun. I found the trick of riding to work is you have to just wear like shorts and a singlet, even if it's the middle of winter, just ride harder and you'll warm up. Uh, okay. <laughs> and then you just change into clothes at work. Yeah. So that that's the big thing that fire has taught me for joy in my life is that the correlation between money and happiness is lower than you might think. Yep. I think that's that's super important. And probably, you know, there's a couple of things that stick out to me in that vein. Of the links that we add related to fire, we'll also chuck in this link here, which is a review of the book Enough by John Bogle, uh, who is the founder of Vanguard Investment Funds, which is a big part of uh, the fire movement, which we'll talk to in a minute. But the key point that I want to bring out here is a quote from Kurt Vonnegut to Joseph Heller, where they were at a party some point back in, I don't know, the 1970s or something like that. So these are, you know, two titans of writing back in the day, and they were at a party with some ridiculously rich guys. And they're talking about, you know, how Heller never managed to follow up Catch-22 with a big successful book. And Kurt Vonnegut says to Joseph Heller, you know, this billionaire makes more money in one day than you've made in your whole lifetime from your novel Catch-22. And Joe responds, yeah, but I have something he'll never have, which is enough. Yeah. That concept of knowing what is enough and knowing what you need. That was just such a big revelation to me in fire is like, okay, I can see the math here. I can figure out how much I spend every year. And here is a tangible number as a big numbers driven guy that I can say is literally enough. And anything above that, you know what? That's cream. I can use it to fund effective altruism. I can use it to expand my lifestyle beyond it if I choose at that point in time. But knowing what is enough for me right now, it helped 20 year old me figure out a path forward, I suppose, in a time when I was like weighing up. Mm, yeah, kind of more hedonistic approaches to life, I'd say. Yeah, bang for more experiences. Yeah, uh, that was like a huge thing back in those days was like, oh, yeah, you've got to just spend all your money on travel and you've got to, you don't want to save your money. You don't want to buy things. Oh, consumerism, they're just such suckers for buying the latest TV and keeping up with the Joneses. What you need to do is you need to spend your money on experiences. Mm, that is modern consumerism to a T. Yep, we don't want stuff. The stuff is so 80s or 90s. Yep, we buy experiences now because that's much cooler. And then you put in your Tinder profile how many countries you visited to because that is the latest luxury good. I just didn't end up buying that that was what added value to my life. No, I'm, I'm not convinced that that is a better use of money necessarily. I think that at the very least, you don't have to deal with an enormous pile of junk when you <laughs> buy experiences rather than that's junk. Fair. I know a few people who own storage sheds and like, why did I buy all this junk? I don't even like it. And now I have to pay $400 a month just to store stuff I don't want. So there's a benefit of experiences that possibly in the long term, they're cheaper. But I don't think that paying to jump out of a plane, paying to drive a Ferrari, all things that I've done, listeners, sorry, is necessarily any less of a luxury good than buying that Rolex or buying that slightly more modest, but still fancy car. That was the, the signs of success in the 80s or 90s. Yeah. Like traveling around the world, I've done a bit of travel. I've done some private travel, some work travel. There's a bit of value there, but at the same time, I came to realize my personality type didn't get as much out of it as many of the people on Instagram or Facebook would make you believe the value was there. Yeah, yeah. And I've traveled probably a lot more than you and probably enjoy it more than you, but I still agree. There's certain people who seem to think that travel is the only worthwhile thing and that is the only way to expand your mind. And I find them enjoyable experiences and I learn about different cultures, but I don't find it transcendent, certainly. I mean, I'm working through a 10-year reading list right now and guess what? It's all entirely free. You can get every single one of these eBooks, and that is expanding my mind 
way, way more than traveling around Mexico or Cambodia or Vietnam or the United States or Europe. Like This is the flip side, because it would be fair to say that I have fallen off the fire rails. I'm sorry, all those people who idolize me as the perfect fire god, of which there are none of you. Um, <laughs> but like, I actually made it a pledge this year that I would spend my entire salary, and I'm probably on track to do more than that at the moment. We'll see whether we can rein it back in by December, but I'm not entirely sure that we can. And what I have learned, and that quote on enough like is a really good kicking off point, because I don't think there is any enough. I think that I find when I have no goals to work towards, when I have nothing to do, that that is when I'm at my absolute most depressed. And it is easy to make goals that have a monetary value because it's just so quantifiable, right? If I can get $10,000, I can take this business class flight to Europe. If I can get $100,000, then I can buy my sweet Porsche. If I can get half a million dollars, then I can buy my sweet Ferrari. They're very quantifiable goals to work towards. But I think where I can definitely accept is true and where I can hopefully bend my psychology back towards in the future, because I'm not sure that this path is sustainable or desirable, is goals like yours. Goals that don't, like goals don't have to cost money, right? Yeah. Training a triathlon cost a bit of money and I ended up buying a stupid bike, which I hated and then immediately sold without barely using. But it didn't have to cost a lot of money. It was one of the most satisfying goals of my life was completing a triathlon or a half triathlon. And it took a lot of focus and a lot of time and a lot of effort, but it didn't cost that much money in the scheme of things. I think that because money is the primary form of power, I guess, that many of us experience in that it, it controls other people and that you give them money and they do things for you. You give them money, they give you a sweet bike. You give them money and they'll take you up in a helicopter ride or whatever. It is a form of power. It's possibly, you know, it's one of the more direct forms of power is you give people money and they do things for you. It is a thing to chase when you want to build towards some goal that requires power. Getting more money is a good way to get there. And so using all your money, because money is just a number that doesn't really do anything, is very tempting to do in the pursuit of these goals. Yeah, that's a great point. We're going to throw to an ad and then we'll talk more about that as we come back. Woo! <laughs> Sucked you out. Guess what? There's actually no ads. We have no sponsors other than oh. you, our generous Patreons. So thank you. Thanks, Patreons. We love you. If we can get any more, that would be nice too. Brian's got to be able to afford Diablo 2 somehow, but I think possibly <laughs> establish that we're not actually very poor. Um, you know, we don't need your money. We just like it. It's just nice to have a podcast that is valued by people. We really, really do appreciate our patrons. They've started sending through topics. They've started sending through coffee bets. This week's coffee bet indeed will be brought to you by yet another patron. So there's perks. It's a nice form of interactivity. But also what we like is email. No one ever emails us. No one has literally ever emailed us. Please, <laughs> listeners, please email us. Give us a topic. Give us something to talk about. We're like running low on ideas here and we want to hear from you. What do you want us to talk about? I would love to hear from listeners on topics to talk about. You know, if we could turn this whole podcast into a user-based question and answer one, like Dear Hank and John, I'd love it. Um, I don't feel like we're going to ever get there. Where we but, come you know. up with dubious answers to your questions. <laughs> but no, thank you everyone for your support so far. Hopefully we can get a few more supporters and thank you for those who put up reviews of the podcast. Really appreciate those as well. So if you ever do come up with any questions and want to reach out to us, make sure that you email affixpodcast at gmail.com or alternatively podcastaffix at gmail.com and we'll be sure to read it straight away. We will definitely read it very quickly. We're so desperate for emails. <laughs> maybe we'll just have to start emailing between the two emails. Oh, uh, maybe <laughs> Brian can email Affix Podcast. I'll be like, oh, there's a new email from a listener. <laughs> <laughs> So building off the points there around, you know, where you want to take your life, figuring out goals and not necessarily being tied to money or realizing that there's goals that you can pursue that are not contingent on huge sums of money. Probably the other big piece of writing that I saw transform the FIRE community over my years of engagement with it would be a seminal post from a guy who 
we've talked about before on this podcast. A Diablo streamer, in fact. Unbelievable. Like, it's literally unbelievable to me that these two people are the same people because I knew both of them because Brian had talked about, like, I knew Mr. Llama, the build the life you want, then live for it, which Brian's going to get into. And I knew Brian had talked about Mr. Llama, the famous incredible Diablo 2 streamer. But the fact that they're the same person is truly ridiculous to me, that Brian's interests are so narrow that one person can embody all of them at once. Yeah, it was incredible. So, Mr. Llama SC, a guy we talked about a few episodes ago who streams Diablo, uh, wrote a really fantastic post, and we'll include it in the show notes, called Build the Life You Want, Then Save for It, where he reflected on his own journey through discovering financial independence, through figuring out what works, what doesn't work for him, and going through a kind of phase that many people who first discover this and realize, oh, wow, if I save a lot of money, I could potentially retire early, uh, go through, which is you just make your life a living hell. Yeah, this seems to be a real trap. And I'm really glad that I don't feel like either of us have really fallen into it, is that a lot of people in the pursuit of fire are like, cool, so I'll just never eat out again. And when their friends invite them to eat out, they don't say, actually, how about we all come to my place and play board games and I'll cook you dinner. They just say, no, I can't come. And then they have no friends. And then whenever a contract at work comes up that they could earn more money, they're like, yes, I need more money. I'm going to work for that more money. So I never have any time to spend it at home. So yeah, reflecting on that, the whole post starts out, I write this as a word of caution and as a learning experience. My name is Mr. Lama SC and I'm a saveaholic. He goes through his history there where he had a girlfriend who he was pretty serious about, but like didn't want to spend a lot of money on a wedding with her and it seemed like there was some tension there. He started up streaming. He originally wanted to be a StarCraft streamer, which is what the SC stands for, and put a lot of time into that, and it didn't really make much money for him, so he felt really disheartened about that. And then he got into Diablo streaming, and that started actually getting him a following, and he was just investing all his time into work and streaming, and not into his personal relationships, not into going out and socializing. His friends would invite him out for drinks, and he'd just say, well, I don't drink alcohol, so why would I even bother coming to the bar with you? Why would I want to spend any money on that? And where it eventually got him was to a point where he was completely socially isolated and his girlfriend left him and he was just completely destroyed. And coming out of that is what he talks to in this post. So he figures out that what you need to do in your life is experiment in your 20s and figure out what is the life that I want to live? What is going to be that enough for me? Now that I've gone through this journey of being a saveaholic, of cutting back everything, I can branch out and I can trust myself to try new things and figure out that what I like in life and understand the value of money in proportion to that and actually know what am I saving for rather than just saving for the sake of not having to go into the office every day. Yeah, it does seem to attract a lot of people who really hate their jobs, that the benefit of financial independence for them is that they don't have to go to their terrible work place where they're really stressed out all the time and they hate it. And I definitely feel like those people should just get different jobs. There's definitely part of that and also experiment more in your life. You know, I've used earlier that, you know, I don't have that many friends who listen to the podcast, but I still have plenty of friends outside it. And I love those friends and spending time with them is always worth it. And building your relationships and finding goals outside of your work that sucks <laughs> is is worth your time. Well, well worth your time. Yeah, there's so much more to life than work. So much more to life than work. And if you just spend your life focused on work so that you don't have to work, <laughs> exactly as the people ask Chris at the end of it, where are you going to be? Like, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah, you're the guy who has spent his entire life thus far working 12-hour days to get the next promotion, to get more money, et cetera, et cetera. When you don't have to work at all, you don't know how to live life. Uh, what they always say is make sure you're retiring to something, not away from something. If you just retire away from something, I hate this job, so I'm not 
not going to work at all anymore. I mean, that's probably the depression that I got into, right? That I just sit on the couch and all I want to do is sleep and I can't force myself to do anything. And that is not a fun existence. And without that, you have to go to work to at least do something with your day. It can become really depressing. This post was kind of the start of that whole meme going through the community of being like, yeah, you have to retire to something, figure out what you want in your life, build your life to it, and then save to that. A few people took it in different ways to just be like, well, then I can spend whatever I want. And as long as I'm saving to get to that outcome, then sure. And that was kind of the move away from those kind of sustainability, minimalism, environmentalism, general themes that had always been there present in the community. And they become more of a, a niche area, I suppose, a niche topic. Mostly people just started talking about basic investment strategies, that kind of thing. Yeah. To me, it became a bit less of an interesting community after that point, but it was still an, an extremely important point to bring up and- at the end of the day, fire is not really that complicated. Like you look at the math, you figure out what you like in your life and you save towards that. Yeah. Don't buy things you don't want. I think that's the biggest trick and it's hard to do because you sort of think you want them at the time. But think really carefully. Do you actually want this 80-inch TV? Does it actually bring any value to your life? Probably not as much as it costs. Just don't buy it. It's incredibly tempting to just spend your entire paycheck as it comes in. But just like try not for a little while. Your life will go on and you'll be pretty happy already, I think. I think. It worked for me. One of the out there ideas that I had philosophically a few years ago was that it is valuable for everyone to live on a very low amount of money for at least six months at some point in their life, just so they can understand what is actually valuable. Yeah. Trying to work out how many happiness points do you get per dollar from each of the things you do and really try to lean into the ones that get you the most happiness for the least dollars because you can yeah. buy a lot of happiness that way. Yeah. And there is a surprising amount of happiness you can get from zero dollars. Going for a walk out in nature is just wonderful. Starting a podcast with your friend. Well, that costs a little bit of money until you can get some generous Patreons. Thank so you, you get again. generous patrons to make it, uh, make it all covered. Thank you, patrons. This is possibly one of the best things in my life right now. But really, genuinely, like the things that I enjoy most weeks is a phone call with a friend that I haven't talked to for a while or going for a bike ride and bike rides definitely I can spend a lot of money on bikes and probably will this year spend a lot of money on bikes but the actual going for a bike ride costs basically nothing. Cutting back everything is often a bad call but it is often a great starting point to figure out what are the things that I want to spend on next like starting from zero the first thing you add should be the thing that adds the most marginal benefit. Yeah, yeah. If you could only buy one thing, this is the thing you buy, right? So it should be the thing that makes you the absolute happiest. Yeah. So by setting yourself at that zero base, you can start building back up that way and figure out, yeah, this thing is actually fantastic for me. I would never sacrifice getting a new pair of runners every three to six months because running is so important to me and I couldn't fathom risking injuring myself for it. On it. Or Chris, having a good road bike is so important to you. I really like my road bike. Having an internet connection that allows me huge amounts of downloads so I can have constant video calls with people and stream. Yep. That could be really valuable to you. Um, figuring out the bank for buck is really important. As a follow-up and to close out the Mr. Lama SC story, so he posted that four years ago. It would have been three, four weeks ago. He actually managed to retire from his day job and he just streams full-time now. So good on him. Is that our Diablo 2 news? That's fantastic. Good for him. Well, it got overwhelmed by uh, D2 Resurrected, but oh, that was the Blizzard. D2 news. Let the man have his moment. <laughs> I think just because you own Diablo 2, you own Diablo 2. So there you go. That was um, 
It was Will a nice Thomas wrap up for him. Good for him. Four years ago, it feels like a million years ago. Then again, 2020 feels like a million years long. So <laughs> it probably was a million years ago in my perceptive time. Pretty much, yeah. So the last thing that I'll say, just because I still do this to this day, is that it's, if you're a grad listening to us or you're very early in your career, you'll find this much easier at your point in your career because you're used to being a uni student and you're used to spending no money. And like, this is what I keep telling people. You had fun at uni, right? I hope you had fun at uni. Like, it's not the money you're making now that's making you have more fun because you know how much fun you can have on a uni student budget. Just do that for as long as possible and like really think carefully before you add things to that lifestyle. I'm not saying never do it. I've added a lot to my lifestyle and I would now struggle to go back to a uni student's lifestyle. But, you know, it's a good lifestyle. Being a uni student, having friends, living in share houses, it's pretty fun. You don't need a lot more than that. And if you can save a lot of money in your 20s, even if all you do is save a lot of money in your 20s and don't retire to your 60s, the money that you save in your 20s has then 30 years to compound, which makes it the most valuable savings you can save in your life. Yeah. So I would 100% back that up. I think there is value to spending money in your 20s, but try to figure out the things that are going to maximize your happiness per buck on that front. Yeah. And I will say, so one of the reasons I came into fire, I don't know, this feels like we're opening up a whole other can of worms, is a lot of the money you spend is mostly to show off to other people. This is like Forrest Gump, right? Is you know, there's only a certain amount of money that a, a man needs. The rest is just for showing off. It's like that amount where you're starting to show off kicks in pretty early if you're <laughs> if you if you have a degree, let's say. The amount of money where you're just spending it to show off to other people, it's really, really early. I am a show-off and I'm certainly spending some of that money on showing off, but that is the easiest to cut because it actually adds nearly no value to your life and the people you think you're showing off to don't care anymore near as much as the marketing blurbs would make you think that they care. So yeah. just stop doing what's it. The, what's the Daniel Kahneman quote? Yeah, yeah. So, well, yeah, I think the Kahneman quote is like, you see a fast car and you're like, man, I wish I owned that car. Everyone would think I was so cool if I owned that car. People would be like, man, that guy's got it sorted. He's got a cool car. Never at any point when you see the fast car do you think... Man, the guy driving that car, he's got it sorted. I really, that guy, I respect him a lot and he's a great guy. You never think that. You just think that other people are going to think it about you. Yeah, nice one. Yeah. And finally, final wrap-up thoughts I'll put on here. There's a few, if you look into fire, there's a lot of bloggers who read about it. (laughs) Sorry, I just have to bring this up. The fire community can be pretty much boiled down to this single post by Mr. Money Mustache in 2012. Let me look at the byline. 2012, January 13, 2012. Like, that's all you need to read. You're pretty much done then. But because it's the fire community, everyone's like, you know, if I earned a bit more money, I could retire even earlier. All of them then set up fire blogs because they're like, hey, here's something I know about. I'm going to blog about it and then I'm going to put ads on that blog and that's how I'm going to make all my money. So there's just there's just way disproportionately many fire blogs because everyone has the same idea. Yeah, like basically save money, put it into low cost index funds. That's all you got to worry about. Oh yeah, we missed the critical bit. <laughs> What do you do with the 70% of the money? Yes, you buy diversified ETFs, change-traded funds, and you just never touch them. Yep, that's basically it. That's all it is. It's very simple. Don't worry about optimizing your portfolio. Don't worry about modern portfolio theory. Don't worry about any of that stuff. Just Vanguard ETFs or other low-cost exchange-traded funds. They'll do the job. Definitely put it in the share market, though. Don't put it in a bank account because you cannot retire in 10 years on uh, by saving 70% of your income if you just put it in a bank account. It won't work. You have to invest it. Yes, 100% that. And yeah, also to your point about uh, content and that kind of thing. Other than Mr. Money Mustache, honestly, the thing that I've enjoyed the most in the FIRE community was Mr. Lama SC's podcast. It had zero advertising in it and it 
He's spoken like a man who is some kind of crazy pyramid scheme salesman, but all he's selling you is happiness. It just, it surprised me every single episode I listened to. Yeah, it's a good series. I would recommend that, definitely. I listened to it years after it came out, but I very much enjoyed it. And, you know, I already knew pretty much everything in it, but I still very much enjoyed it. It's a very good explanation on the FIRE community's theory on how to be happy. Not just how to retire early, but I think, yeah, FIRE is more of a happiness philosophy than it is a financial philosophy. To me, at least, that is more what I've taken out of it. Uh, Yeah. Mr. Lama is the absolute epitome of that. Yep. Mr. Money Mustache is great. He's the godfather of it all. But I also have this secret suspicion that he's like a real genuine masochist, like probably like a whips and chains kind of guy. And sometimes that bleeds through. It's like, I'm not saving money because I have to save money. I'm saving money because pain is excellent. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know whether I'm a pain is excellent kind of guy, man. I know I did that triathlon, but it's like, I'm still not sure that's me. Uh, yeah, there's parts of it that appeal to me, but I'm moving is it away. the whips or the chains? <laughs> Just the suffering. It doesn't matter how. (laughs) So save your money, put it into low-cost ETFs and figure out how to be happy. It's just that simple, folks. It's just that simple. (laughs) Just, uh, you know, your entire life's philosophy, you've got it from this podcast. Done and dusted. (sighs) If only, if only. Now, back to my 10-year reading list. One, two, three. It's coffee bed time. It's coffee bed time. Actually, it's not quite coffee bed time because I have exciting no. coffee bed news. Oh. So, you know the news, but the listeners don't know the news yet. For our delightful Patreons, they have already experienced the joy of betting alongside Brian and Chris. So, I have turned Yay. our coffee bets, all our coffee bets, into a Google Forms that you can fill in just to see where you agree with Brian and where you agree with Chris. And the problem is that Brian is, like, pretty obviously going to win some of these bets, even though they haven't closed yet. So, uh, so far, the bets that have been made alongside us have been weighted heavily towards Brian. But I would really like to see where everyone else thinks. Even Chris has got a pretty good win history here i think you know people should start with him i think i'm winning currently but i think that there are some bets that you are so close to winning that we could almost call them now so there is one (laughs) bet that i will say that we can call which is will the aud hit greater than 80 usdc usd cents and that has apparently already happened it happened for like five minutes on a tuesday but uh, we never closed over 80 cents but you know the bet was not made on close the bet was will it buy more than 80 cents and that has done so brian has won that bet we'll take that out of the ones that you could bet on because that's cheating <laughs> and that was literally before the aussie dollar completely crashed as well folks yes <laughs> it was yes. like just peaked and then everyone's sell orders came in it really triggered that 80 cents threshold really it seemed to be a trigger before a sell-off basically and it dropped yep. down back to 76 cents or something within the day uh, but it was enough. Drastic. But it was enough. It's enough to win a coffee, which is the important thing. And I, I will be with Brian in a couple of weeks, possibly while you're listening to this podcast now, dear listener. I will be drinking some of those coffees with Brian, which I'm deeply looking forward to. But yes, the important thing is that there is a Google Forms. I've reworded the question. If you've ever looked at our spreadsheet on coffee bets, I've made it a little bit easier to read. I've turned it more into question format. So if you'd like to vote along with us, it'd be really interesting to see what you guys think. Is we can sort of turn it into a prediction market, as it were, and see what you listeners think of each of the bets that we've been making. So I'll try after we've got this big one through which will have all the questions every week i will try to put a link where you can vote on which way you want to go on chris and brian's coffee bet so you can do it extemporaneously and you can bet alongside with us so that would be fun i'm really looking forward to that that's fantastic and also arbitrator who is the patron who is our arbitrator for the ubi bet you're not allowed to bet on that one all right you're right <laughs> yeah yeah we don't want any insider trading that is illegal under u.s securities and exchange commission law <laughs> no fantastic that's great news 
So what's so, the bet this week? The bet this week, once again, sent in by one of our patrons, is when will the next interest rate rise be in Australia? So we had a bet on inflation rates after we talked about interest rates. And I believe the RBA has committed to no interest rate rise for a period of three years. And I'm not sure how much of that has elapsed. But A, can they do it after we talked about the uh, the dog and the horse cart last time or the bus driver and the road last time? Yep. Uh, we had a couple of different analogies on people looking like they're in control, but perhaps not being. But when will they put it up? How many years will it be? So this is one of these, this will be an interesting one because it's sort of time unbounded. It could be a 50-year bet, although I would be shocked if it were. Yeah. When will the Reserve Bank of Australia increase the interest rate, the cash rate? What is it called? Is it the cash rate? Yeah, it's the cash rate. The cash rate. Um, all right. I'm going to posit that... The next cash rate maximum move will be 10 basis points. They used to always move in multiples of 25. I think we've yeah. hit a point where they cannot move in multiples no, of 25 basis points No, I don't think, I think it's going up anymore. by 25 basis points at once. I mean, it would wipe me out. Then my entire salary would be spent on this ridiculous mortgage that I just got. I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. Yeah, so I think 10 basis points at most. They might even have to factor it back to like five basis point moves. Yeah. Um, It'll be more tweaking at that level, the amount of leverage in the economy at the minute, like you say. <laughs> You're going to wipe out a lot of people on their mortgage payments. Yep, Australian mortgages are pretty big. When do I think it'll happen? I think from my quick reading on you know the sluggishness of the response to the 1970s inflation uh, over the last week, maybe it wouldn't be that fast. I think... You reckon we're going to make the same mistakes again? I'm prone to believe it, yeah. Oh, I'm trying really? to think through the consequences, right? So if the US runs too hot and it takes them a couple of years to figure out, now we need to wind it back. Like they'll spend a couple of years being like, you know what? It's just catch up inflation. We can deal with that. It's been below target. It's just catch up. Sure. Yep. That sounds like a solid justification. Yep. So that'd get us out to that three year point pretty comfortably, I reckon. So 2023. And that's just the US. I don't know that Australia has been running as hot as the US and we don't have like a trillion dollar stimulus package coming. Yeah. A second trillion dollar sti- stimulus package. Although, our yeah. stimulus package. I wonder proportionally what the Job Keeper Act cost compared to the CARES Act. Yeah, we're we're up there in terms of like GDP to government debt ratios for sure. Who him? Who him? I'm inclined to believe. Yeah, 2023. 2023. So that's that's the minimum, right? So let's say when did that? When do they commit to no interest rates rises for three years? When was that? I'm going to say, yeah. 2020? Let's say that, yeah. Yep. So that would so, be end of 2023 would be the three-year window. Do I reckon the economy is going to bounce back? I mean, it depends, how, it depends whether they can keep this commitment. Like, I really feel like they have to. If they ever want to make commitments like this in the future, and I think that these are important commitments to be able to make, that they have to keep this commitment even if it looks pretty ugly by the end of 2022 or the mid-2023. So it will be how ugly it looks by then, whether they decide, geez, now we really need to increase the interest rate, or whether, man, everyone's gotten completely used to these low interest rates. If we raise them, we'll destroy the entire economy. Yeah, that point of leverage is going to be a tricky one. And it's going to be so tied to how I think the economy's performing in that time as well. I know, three years is a long way off, right? Because the the recovery from COVID is looking pretty good, but it could be all false hope and it could all come crashing back down. I don't know. Well, the next thing that could happen could happen, right? People were already speculating on collapses happening before the pandemic hit. And maybe we just, you know covered it all up during that time maybe there's yes. a lot of zombie businesses out there yes there's a couple of theories around whether the pandemic revealed the shaky businesses or hid them behind you know masses of government stimulus mm. what do they say it's only when the tide goes out that you work out who's been swimming naked yep <sighs> when's the election 
Oh, good question. No, nah, it's before then, right? We're running a yeah, three yeah. and a half year. So there must be an election before. The I mean, the RBA has got a pretty good history of not giving a crap about the election and screwing politicians with their moves uh-huh. around it anyway. So, you good, know, good. I, I feel okay about central bank independence. Pleased to hear that. But leading up to elections is when, you know, or immediately after elections is when a lot of stimulus money goes flowing out, right? To deliver on all the promises right, people sure. make. Yep, 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 definitely. <sighs> I don't know. What are you thinking on this? I'm going through all my thoughts. I do think that it, I actually think it'll be pretty quick if the bank is being responsible. So I think that committing to that three years, I think that they will keep that commitment. But I think that possibly time will prove that that commitment was a mistake and that they will have to react quickly post that commitment to start increasing interest rates. So I would actually, I would be erring on the pretty close to three years side that um the amount of money being printed, yeah, it's, it's difficult being in a bet on Australia as well, right? Because the American Second Cares Act or whatever it's called, the $1.9 trillion stimulus, worries me a little bit in terms of inflation and it feels like interest rates might have to rise in order to keep up with that. But I don't know whether Australia has something comparable and whether we would have to raise interest rates uh, in the same. But then again, the US economy pretty much drives the world and certainly drives a significant amount of Australia's economy. So maybe we just have to raise interest rates to keep up with the US. I actually think that the short side is the fair bet somewhere in the three to four year mark. I don't think it's going to be five or six years before the raise happens. I don't think they're going to get through the three years and be like, oh, we're going to reduce them again. That uh, mm, It seems unlikely to me. All right. Well, I'm going to go on the long side of the bet if you want to go the short side then. Yeah. So where are we putting the bet? What do we say? Back half of 2023 is the earliest. So could we say end of Q1 2024? Yep. All right. I'll take that. End of Q1 2024. Yep. So if it happens after that, I win a coffee. All right, listeners, you've slogged through all the boring stuff. Finally, we're going to be talking about Diablo 2. What is the news, Brian? Woo! Woo! All right, get pumped, Don't blow folks. out that mic. So <laughs> I was talking last week about people preparing for the launch of Project Diablo 2 Season 2. So the yeah, latest yes. ladder, the ladder season. Where you start all your characters again and you race to get to level a million. Yeah, pretty much, level 99. Last season, it took someone grinding pretty much, would have been 12, 14 hours a day, for 11 straight days to get to level 99 first. And he was an Australian guy. <laughs> are they on UBI? Are they retired early? How are they? What? How are they spending 14 hours a day? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's Kano. I want to talk to him. I want to understand. Wow. Good work, Kano. A plus. I'm impressed and disgusted by you. <laughs> uh, yeah. So he's bad out of this season from what I can tell. I think he's trying to wind down and just... Uh, figure out his approach to streaming going forward. He also streams a game called Osu, which is really, really fun to watch <laughs> for people. Yes, it is. Yep, Brian's made me watch that too. But yeah, so Project Diablo 2, new season went live, would have been a week ago for listeners now. Uh, so it's still early enough for there to be a lot of activity in there. If you want to log on, download the mod and check it out. It's a lot of fun. Big team was running yesterday. I watched a bit of it, uh, which was the... Common names in Diablo streaming, I'd say. So we had Macalb, who I've been mentioning a few times in history. Yep, and which I can spell now that I've put him in the show notes. There you go. We've got Macro Bio Boy. We've got Mr. Llama SC. Teo was on there. Was Bender in the mix? No, Bender's a purist. He oh, just really? sticks to plain Doesn't old like regular plus Diablo. Plus. Okay. And uh, same with Indrek as well, actually. So the others were kind of... I hesitate to say ring-ins, but uh, one of the guys, Gymnasium, he runs a lot of Minecraft these days. So he used to coordinate the eight-man runs on Diablo 2. 
Anyway, they played yesterday. A lot of people on the Project Diablo 2 Reddit were very upset because they managed to get on a lot of servers that didn't crash just out of <laughs> luck, I suppose. And they're like, oh, it's all streamer privilege. What is this garbage? Oh, no. I mean, if I was running the servers, I would privilege the streamers personally. But unfortunately, where that leaves us is, you know, there was an interesting run yesterday watching all those streamers get together and work on beating the game as fast as they could. I think it took them around four and a half hours to beat Bale which compared to regular Diablo 2, wow. an eight-man run can beat Bale, Hell Bale in two hours, five minutes, I think is Hell the world Bale. record. Wow. Yep. So there's a lot more in this mod, right? There's a lot more you have to do or they've just balanced some exploits or whatever you want to call them that make it too easy? They've balanced a lot. They've made a lot more classes playable. So like That's good. a martial arts assassin and a few like melee characters are just awful to play in base. Whereas in Project Diablo 2, they've got like things that can give you splash damage. So you have area of effect on your melee attacks and stuff like that. Yep. And also they just ran it slower because yeah, the servers were still crashing. They didn't right. get all the privilege. Right. <laughs> And here's the question. As the previous US West Diablo eight-hour champion, highest ever on whatever your record was at the time where you were the best in the world. At <laughs> I was some... the best necro and I was the number one on the ladder, yep. There you go, number one on the ladder. Why weren't you playing? Why are you just watching? Uh, I don't know. I've just got family stuff now, man. <laughs> <sighs> if you had UBI, would your family go away? Is that one of the perks? I think it would just be contingent on... They'd have to have resets in the middle of the week. For Resurrected, I'm definitely going to just be aligning it with my family that, no, this is These just my weekend. Out. <laughs> yep, exactly. So no new speedrunning world records, but Project Diablo 2, the new season, seems interesting and maybe you want to check it out. Excellent. I also made the discovery while watching it out in the shed on my big TV and also watching it on my laptop. It's my TV that does the like fancy shading effects that made it look oh, so really? amazing. <laughs> it's the part of the upscaling from your TV itself. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So like good job home brand big W TVs. <laughs> I think we were talking about the veil of ignorance. Oh dear, Chris is just uh... broken a wine glass. Uh, well, we know we have our after the credits scene at least. <laughs> you shouldn't have finished that bottle. <laughs>